afternoon and welcome to another episode of A Contagious Smile, where every smile tells a story. I'm so excited. We have Wendy with us. I have to tell you, before we even get started, and I hope I don't embarrass her, I have had the privilege of knowing this amazing, beautiful woman for a few months now, and she is just a light. She's a light of information. She is a light of resources, and I just want to dive right into it. I'm so excited because I'm going to give a little teaser that her podcast is getting released in the next couple of weeks. And I've been hanging by a thread, waiting and waiting and waiting on it to be released. And now it's here. It is. <laughs> Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Um, yeah. And Pastrix Podcast is the name of the podcast. And it's coming. It is coming. So folks, like, please, we already do have a trailer on. So people can subscribe already um, and listen to the trailer. And can also follow me on Impostrix Podcast um, on what is it Instagram? Um, yeah, but yeah. So my name is Whitney. Tell me what yeah. Okay. So my, na- <laughs> my name is Whitney Lee, and um, the podcast is called Impostrix Podcast, and it is a podcast that affirms the experiences of professionals of color who navigate imposter syndrome and racial toxicity within their careers. And, um, you know, I am someone, I am a woman, I'm a black woman, I'm in the legal profession, I'm a civil rights attorney. Um, I'm also an equity and inclusion consultant to law firms throughout the U.S. And now I'm a podcast host. And I really, I don't know, delight in these kinds of conversations that I have with Victoria and others about like the power of women. And that's really what we we were talking about pre-recording is just how amazing we are regardless of our race, regardless of our backgrounds. The fact of the matter is that a lot of us are in um, situations in our life where we are controlling things, like we are making things happen, whether that's in our household, whether that's at work, whether that's within our friend groups, um, you know, in my household, I'm responsible for making sure all the appointments get made, the kids get to their school and activities and all of that and I work full-time and it's a lot and so many of us think that we are worthless you know or think that we I don't know are are second class and we're not we're the best women are the best we give life are you serious we are the best you know what they need to be validated I love to be validated. I love it. That is her phrase. That is her tag line. And what is the be validated stand for? What's the acronym stand for? Yes. So be validated is what I want folks to walk away when they listen to a conversation that I'm in. I want them to walk away feeling as though they are validated. And so be validated. We have words for each of those meanings for each of those the first is believe so believe in yourself and then engage engage with us engage with each other like this the spaces that I want to be in are spaces that are communal learning and support spaces they're not like teaching where like I'm some expert somewhere and telling you to do these things no I want to learn from you because you have power and you have something to give just as I have something to give. Um, And when we talk about validated, we're valued, 
We're affirmed. We are limitless. We can do whatever we want, y'all. We can literally do whatever we want to do. We may have to be strategic around it. We may have to take on some additional jobs, maybe for the money or skills in order to be in the position that we need to be in, but we can do whatever we want to do. I is for intuitive because I really want to encourage people to listen to their intuition. We have so much information coming at us all the time. And a lot of this, particularly for folks of color, for folks living with disabilities, for survivors of crime and of domestic abuse and violence, we are gaslit. We're gaslit. So this idea that what I'm experiencing, I'm not actually experiencing it, or that I'm being unreasonable because I'm hurt by something that you said, or because I want to go spend time with my friends, that's an unreasonable thing for me to want to do. Um, so I want us to listen to our intuition and like sort out for ourselves what is right and what is wrong for us, for our individual bodies. We are deserving. That's what D stands for, is deserving. We are deserving of all of the goodness in this world. And we have worth. Yeah. We have worth. Um, A is for activated. When we have these conversations, I want folks to leave feeling like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go do something. I'm going to go do something today. Or I'm going to do something this week. I'm going to have a plan for whatever goal that I have. We are treasured. I treasure you. I treasure my conversations with Victoria, y'all, because I take so much from them. And like, it's it's a sisterhood. Yes. It really is. Yes. So we are treasured. E is emboldened and D is divine. Okay. Oh, divine. I love that whole message. The whole message is like amazing. It's yeah. so inspirational. It really is. Now for people who might not know, what is imposter syndrome? Can you explain it so that people can understand? I can. Imposter syndrome is this idea. It was coined by um, two psychologists in the late 1990s, in the late 1970s, who were studying their clients who were primarily white middle class women, and they found that these women they were high achieving women, so they were women in um, professional careers, or they were. PhDs, or they were seeking advanced educational skills um, in colleges and universities, but they always felt as though they were intellectually fake. Um, that, like, even though they had all of these accomplishments behind them, even though they had their PhDs, for example, they felt as though what they were actually giving, like, was somehow fake or that they weren't as smart as other people thought they were. And then one of the key kind of components of imposter syndrome is the fear that somebody's going to find out about your fakeness. So it's, in short, this idea that I'm an intellectual fraud and that somebody's going to find out. And we experience, people who experience imposter syndrome can experience this in just one area of their life, like in the workplace or they can experience it in various areas of their lives. And one place that I've experienced it is actually in motherhood. And I don't know if you can relate, Victoria, or not, but I'm somebody that dealt with um, postpartum depression. And I had um, I have a history of depression. And so as I was getting ready to have my first child, I started going to therapy because I just figured I was going to be one of the ones 
that had the postpartum depression. Um, but and I did actually have it, but when I had it, it looked much different than how depression had looked for me in the past. It felt more of like this overwhelm and in hindsight, this imposter syndrome of like, I don't pass, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I don't know how to be a mother. And I was sad because I didn't know how to be a mother. And like not happy. Like, why am I not happy that I have this beautiful baby? Um a baby that I wanted, you know, a very planned sure. child. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. He's so cute. That little thing. Yes, my son Everett just made his way in and Victoria had a chance to meet him. Um I told yeah. him he could be in trouble and I would just look at him and be like, What? What'd you do? Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I experienced this kind of like I'm not a real mom because I don't feel like I felt real mom should feel. Um, like I'm not somebody that wants to be with my child every second of the day. I was ready to send my kids to daycare after maternity leave. Um, and the the constant comparison between myself and how other people parent um, is something that's made me feel kind of impostery. Um, and so that's just one example. But like I said, we can experience it in many areas of our lives. Um, and we can experience it even though in other areas of our lives, we are 100% confident and competent. Um, so it's a tricky thing. And we can utilize lots of different coping mechanisms in order to kind of live with imposter syndrome. And sometimes that might look like not showing up authentically because we are afraid that if we show up authentically, then people will figure out that we are frauds. You know, they'll figure out what our true capability is and they won't like it. And so people with imposter syndrome may do a lot of people pleasing in order to kind of get that individual person's buy-in or that organization's buy-in before they kind of show up as them actual selves because then if they do disappoint somebody so like if I disappoint you Victoria with who I actually am you're already invested in me as a person um and so maybe you'll accept me and all of my flaws uh so that's one thing but also we have this this fear of rejection and so we bend and shape ourselves in ways to make sure that other people are happy with what we're doing so that we are not rejected. Um, so it's very complex. And some of these things that I'm describing are things that I've experienced in other areas of my life that's not attached to imposter syndrome. And so I wonder about like codependency. You know, for me, I'm reminding myself of codependency. And when I've been in abusive relationships, like how that's felt and me really wanting to mold myself to just be the person that's not going to make me mad, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a very long explanation and some examples. Yeah. It's a great explanation, but you know, in today's society, we need, it feels like we as women do everything we can for everybody else. And we put ourselves like on the very back burner. We don't take care. There's no self-care on ourselves. And then, for instance, like a lot of my friends will have me go with them and negotiate anything um, because that's my wheelhouse is, is negotiation. So, like, for instance, I just got new air conditioning and immediately the guys go straight to the men. They, the salesman or whatever, go straight to the men. And I'm like, no, sweet, you're, you're dealing with me. And it's immediately like, what? You go and buy a car and they go, oh, we got a woman coming. Watch this. I'm going to add this snake oil and this and this and this. I'm going to add this and this. And then they think it's okay, but it's not. And then the women can 
brought them with almost like this internal kind of introvert way where they're like, okay, you know, oh, you need a bumper to bumper warranty on a brand new one mile car. You know, it's another seven thousand. Oh, 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 okay. And you know, and then oh, you need a if you sneeze in your car charge. Oh, 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 okay. You know, and and it's like we conform because we have such reservation of how people think of us that we don't care about how we see each other, mm-hmm. how we see ourselves. It's okay. We're such people pleasers as women, wives, husbands, partners, to you know, to whomever you're with, that we just lose our true inner self. Yes. And I, you know, this has happened to me, what you're describing about when you went through this thing with the air conditioner. Matter of fact, I also had a situation with an air conditioner repairman um, who came in asking for my husband, like came to the house. I opened the door and he asked for my husband. And I said, my husband's not available, but I am. Like, we can talk. Did you get that? What was that? Did you get that? We'll come back later when we can talk to him. We did. No, nah, he wouldn't. (laughs) I did not. But it was like, you know, I'm capable of having this conversation with you. I understand, you know, the words. And if I don't, then I'll ask you the questions. Like, and and for me, this really has to do with like standing in our power um, and acknowledging that we have power. We have the right to ask questions. So if somebody is trying to sell us some something that we just don't need or that doesn't sound quite right to us or that we don't understand, we don't have to nod along and like agree just because there's somebody that says that they know. Like we can, with car sales, we can go home, research and come back tomorrow. Yes. That's totally okay. Right. And for us to be sometimes pressured into these type of decisions because it's usually men who are like talking over us, making us feel small. Um, and then when we have a question to ask, make us feel stupid, like that's gaslighting. Yes. Um, that's a great example of like what that can look like when it's not such a personal, you know, hot topic issue is just this feeling of like, no, you have a right to have questions. You have a right to ask those questions. You have a right to be respected in every space that you walk in um, simply because you're a person, like you're human, just like they are. We had uh, a few different people from companies come over and, and give us an estimate and, and see. And, and one of them was like, oh, I can't remember what the code was that I give. Hold on, I gotta go back and look. And I recited it just instantly. I was like, da, 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 da. and he looks and he looks over at my husband. He goes, oh, I guess the woman days of being barefoot in the kitchen are over. And he goes, oh, ooh, no, sh- no, no. <laughs> No. It's like your husband, your husband knows, like, he said the wrong thing in like, front of the no. wrong one. And he said, you know, she may walk up and say, hey, you know, this is who I am or whatever. And he, my husband's like, she's two doctors. She don't mention any of that. She's just, you know, to me, you put on your pants the same way I do. He puts on his pants the same way I do. You know, I'm not a big about titles. When I was in the corporate world, I treated my CEO like I treated my receptionist. I treated my executive assistant. I treated everybody the same. We are people. You know, I don't see any of that garbage. You know, we, mm-hmm. I treat you with respect, then I get respect back. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's how it's supposed to be. But when these guys are like, oh, 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 um, I guess you're not pregnant in the kitchen anymore. And I'm like, you do know that it was one of me who carried you, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can't carry a child because you get a toothache and you're bedridden for a week where <laughs> we're in labor and we're dealing with your man cold 
and we're cleaning up our broken water and preparing dinner in a casserole somewhere before we drive to the hospital, give birth, come home, nurse, work from home, and do everything else while you sit your lazy butt on the couch with your popcorn or chips, and you're like, babe, can you have me a brew? Can you have me a brew? <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm nursing your offspring. Can you, yeah. whatever it is, and we do so much. And, you know, I love my husband. He's my soulmate. There's not a question in the world that ever has doubted that he is the one. But when I say something to him, I'm like, oh my gosh, look, like when I got my doctorate, he was like, I don't expect any less from you. And I'm like, what? You know, how about I? <laughs> He's like, this is this is who you are, you know. And I'm like, but I would have loved it. I'm so proud of the accomplishment. And it was just like, it's what I came to expect from you. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we we need to validate ourselves as women and help each other because we're our worst critics. We yes. are our worst critics. We care so much about making everything else great for everybody else that we forget about ourselves and self care and. It, it's not okay, you know? And then if something happens, then it puts us even further back where we need to be. And that's why we all need to come together and like pull each other off of the couch and say, we got you, we're going to be there for you. You're not doing this alone. Yeah, that's right. And that reminds me of this, uh, another component of um, imposter syndrome, which is that thought that when something good happens or when we've achieved something, it's because of luck. And when we fail at something, or maybe it doesn't go how we anticipated, or there's some kind of adverse outcome, that is a showing of our true capability. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, we can never give ourselves the props that we're due. Um, And then when bad things happen, it's our fault. And that's because we suck. You know, that's, that's the internal belief. And you're right, like, we have to, we can't succumb to that. Because it starts like, the believing in ourselves n- needs to happen within. I love, I have a, a close group of friends who I call my sister circle. I rely on them for affirmation in times where I am struggling to affirm myself because that happens. That absolutely happens. Yeah. Um, and they serve this role of like helping me remember that I am amazing. Um, but like, I also have to do that work myself too. and. Um, so I, this is the reminder to everybody out there that like, we got this, like we got this. And when the times come where we feel as though we don't got this, then, you know, have somebody in your life who can support you and who can remind you of all of the greatness that you are, who can remind you of all of your accomplishments or of what you've overcome or of boundaries that you set. Like that's another big one for women is like not, we, we feel as though we're not entitled to have boundaries. And sometimes it's because when we have boundaries, other people make us feel badly about them or we feel badly about them. So like going back to motherhood, just as a mom, you know, one of the boundaries that I have to have is that my my children don't get access to me every second of the day. Like right now, my mother-in-law is watching my child and um, I have to be able to take a step back from my children so that I can do the things that I, you know, my goals as just, a single individual, independent woman, like my identity is not 100% your mother, child, you know, and, and then I have to actually like, keep those boundaries, (laughs) which is difficult, which is very difficult. Um, 
But, you know, we can feel so guilty. And even my children, you know, they're children, so they expect their mom all the time. But Victoria heard my son Everett talking about like, well, but mommy, when are you going to like, basically, when do I have access to you again? Because I'm expecting to have access to you at all times. Um, And it's, he has a right to feel that. Like, let me know. I'm not talking mess about my child. He has a right to feel that because he is a child and I am his mother. Um, And I have to protect my energy and my space so that I can do whatever the goals are that I have in my life and so that I can do self-care. And I don't have to feel bad about that. I don't have to feel guilty about it. I'll tell you because nobody like got to see this, but when you were talking to him, your eyes changed so much. I was looking at your eyes and your eyes were so full of love and glisten when you looked at him. And you were like, oh, I, I know, I know. And, and I will, I'll be in there like an hour and a half. And you were trying to be like, I got you, it's fine. But your eyes were like, I love this kid. Like he's mm-hmm. just, but, and this is my boy. This is my baby. But I need to let you know that you need to have full independence too. And that's so important for them. Mm-hmm. They need to have independence. But your eyes were all like, this is my heart. This is my baby. Mm-hmm. It was so sweet. It was so cute. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing. And it's also you know, going back to what you said, like, I, you know, being that I, I know firsthand when I went through the domestic violence, I never thought I'd be that woman. I never thought I'd be that bad ever. And people actually would say to me, what did you do to make him mad? Why didn't you just do what he wanted? Why? And then I got to that point. Like, you hear it every day. You begin to believe it. Like, That's when right. someone says, you're ugly, you're fat, you're never going to be worth anything. People feel sorry for me for being with you. You begin to think this is this is my standard. This is where I belong. I'm never going to get better than this. And that's where I was. I got to the point I jumped when I heard a sound. I, mm-hmm. you know, and it was, it was horrible. Like it, it feels like the best explanation I can give is being an asthmatic trapped in a room of smokers and mm-hmm. no window or door. I mean, because mm-hmm. you can't breathe in mm-hmm. so many ways. And now, you know, you hear that, well, why did you make him mad? You know, you should do what he wants. And even people were like, well, he's the man. He's the man. He's a freaking coward. He's a coward. If you're going to mm-hmm. hit a woman, even if you're a woman and you hit a man, you're still a coward. Mm-hmm. Walk away. Walk, turn around and be that bigger person. Mm-hmm. Walk away. You know, if you're going to, like my abuser did, he shot and killed my puppy to prove a point of what he would do to me if I tried mm-hmm. to leave. That doesn't make you a man. What? person on this planet says what did you do to make him mad that's not a man that is not a man that is not a man to me is my grandfather a man to me was someone who worshipped and adored his family lived for his wife everything was look at my beautiful bride pulled the chair out ordered for her I mean was there when she was healthy was there when she was sick and never ever complained I never saw them fight if they had a disagreement it was behind closed doors I wanted that relationship. I emulated everything about them and mm-hmm. who I wanted to be as a woman, a, a mother, a partner, you know, a friend. And that is a man. But for someone to hit somebody, male or female, in front of their partner, whatever the, the sex is in the, in the mm-hmm. relationship, you're showing your kids that that's okay behavior to not only emulate, but to accept. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand how people think that that is okay. And I talked to so many beautiful people who I hate how I've met them because they've been abused. And they're like, I'm not worth it. This is all I'm ever going to get. So I might as well stay. Do you love your kids? Do you? Because it's going to happen. If it hasn't happened yet, that individual is going to uh, be your children. 
It's going to mm-hmm. happen in a matter of time. And you might not think you're worth it. Your children are. And that doesn't need to be the life they come up in. And then they feel no security. Home is supposed to be a place of security. Mm. They're supposed to know that when they walk in that door, they're unconditionally loved, they're unconditionally accepted, and they are home. That is a place where they know that they are safe. Now you go to school and they're not safe there either, whether they're being bullied or they are becoming a bully. It's because Mm -hmm. they want attention. Mm -hmm. And instead, immediately, we go and look at it the whole wrong way. And everybody turns around and says, oh, I'm more worried about the judgment from the other parents and staff of the school than the decisions that I make with my child. I promise you, in five years, or not even five years, you're not going to know these people anymore. And you know what, to me, I don't care. When, when Faith was in public school before I homeschooled her, they knew I was, I was the room mother, I was the, chair, the grade chair. I did everything for them. They also knew. If you endangered my child in any way because she had a parent pro, you had to be mm-hmm. trained to be with her. I trained them myself. If you did anything, the wrath is coming. And they knew it <laughs> because that's my child. Yeah. You know, you want to say now that there's, there's schools that believe now it's okay to paddle kids. But if you or I paddled our kid, they're going to call CPS on us. Like mm-hmm. a person who is not related is allowed to paddle. Are you crazy? Let's. Mm. I told him one day. I said, "Be dumb. Be dumb. Pick mm-hmm. up the paddle. Just, mm-hmm. just do it and watch what's going to come. Because you are not touching my child. Mm. You know. And what would you do if you found out the teacher hit one of your kids? It'd be over. There wouldn't be like talk about a lawsuit. I mean, my my husband whenever at my youngest was I don't know probably two years old. Evidently, my husband walked in on the daycare teacher threatening another child with a belt and my Everett never went back. Like my husband, we had stuff there, like Everett's property, bottles and stuff were still there. Like we never even went back. Yeah, placeable. Yeah, like never went back. My husband called me and was like, well, uh, today was Everett's last day at that school. (laughs) I'm like, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because we are their voices. They can't Mm -hmm. speak. You know, we can't, you can't do that. Like I, I helped out in the special needs classroom and they had every grade in there. And I worked with the grade above my daughter and we were doing fractions and it's the chalkboards. Now you have a wipe on, wipe off boards. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I always bring in like treats and, and surprises, but you don't know anymore if they're allergic or whatever. Yeah. And so I bring in stickers and, and cute giveaways and colors and, you know, coloring books and, and little prizes, none of which are food. And I go in there and I'm like, okay, what's everybody's favorite thing? These third, these third graders said pizza. And I'm like, okay, so I drew a pizza on the wipe off board. And the teacher comes up and there's three of the kids and myself. So I cut it to four. And I was like, oh, okay, so here's our pizza. And I was like, who wants what on it? And everybody was like, have So I just threw a little, you know. And the teacher comes up and goes, you are wasting your time because they're never going to announce anything. And I was like, can I speak to you in the hall for a moment, please? Because I said, oh, you you know they heard you, right? And I'm like, that's not okay. And you know what? You're not working with them. I am. So I go back over and say to them, okay, here's one fourth or one slice. And you start working with them and they get it. Everybody learns different. I don't care who you are. Everybody is going to learn differently. 
And so we went about it a different way and had the journey of a different way. And then they got it. And so, you know what? I give them choices in the pencils. And okay, here's the pencils. Here's some cool erasers. Here's a cool notebook. Here's some cool stickers. I got to learn what they like and I would bring this stuff to them. And then I let them have like the ticket thing where I would say, okay, you get a ticket. And if you get five tickets, you get to go into the big box and bonus. And, you know, and then they were so excited because they want that positive recognition. And that is so critically important because they're still a person. They're still an individual, you know? And that's what the problem is, is that so many people today don't even look at it. And they are the happiest people on this planet. They don't care about the little things. They don't let the little things become drama issues. They value every single second of life. And we need to learn from them because they are the ones showing the way. You know, these things that, you know, everybody else let bother them doesn't faze them at all. You know, and that's that's so wrong. Like, my daughter got bullied. Well, there's a zero bully uh, tolerance. So I go to the principal and she, you know, they're like, you have to make an appointment. I walk right past into the office. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not making an appointment. And I said, where is it? Here it says here, there's a zero tolerance. Well, your daughter is in special needs, so it doesn't say that. I was like, well, I'm sorry. I don't have my glasses with me. But where does it say that in the handbook? It doesn't have an exclusion. It doesn't have anything down here. Because she's in the special needs, she is exempt from bullying. Like, bullying doesn't matter to her. It's allowed to happen. And they're like, well, you know, we're not going to do anything about it. Oh, oh, yes, you are. Because it's not going to happen. She will never be somebody's you know, little body punching that. It's not going to happen. Well, and I think, like, this really, when you said this thing about uh, the, the teacher who said, you know, you're wasting your time because they're never going to amount to anything. Like, that's that's the underlying message that we have about people with disabilities and students with disabilities in this um, society. And, you know, I'm somebody I also my my son is autistic, um, but I've also done a lot of work professionally with um, people who live with disabilities. And it's such a pervasive message to the point of when Faith is bullied, they don't treat the bullier the same way that they would treat everybody else because Faith is a person with special needs. Like what? Right. How does that make sense? So because Faith is a person with special needs, and that means evidently to you that she matters less, then we are not going to hold these other students to the same standard as we would if they were bullying somebody else because what? They, I don't know, like what? Because they also don't believe that, you know, like, it's just, it's so, I think it's so important for us um, as adults, whether or not we are parents, um, adults that have children in our lives, like, we need to have these conversations with our kids that it's okay to see differences, like, see differences, like, acknowledge me for everything that I am, acknowledge that you know, my son might behave a little bit differently than you expect and ask me questions about that and like learn about it and get to know more about it. But don't disrespect him. Right. And I, you know, had to have a conversation with my, with Everett, the cute one that you just saw, um, because we went through a drive through and the woman who um, was speaking to us over the intercom had an accent, a Southern accent. We're in the South. So I don't know why to him it sounded quote unquote weird. But he felt like this woman sounded weird. And I had to, when we went through the drive-thru, turn around and look him in the eye to say, we don't talk about 
that other people speak weird because what you're comparing him to or that person to is how you speak. And nobody said anything about how you speak being the right way to speak. Like, that's just how you speak. And that's just how this other woman speaks. Like, there's no better or worse. There's no right or wrong. It's just speech. It's how we communicate and we get to communicate however we want. And I think, like, it's really important for us to have these conversations. And I told him, like, I don't want to hear you talking about, like, how somebody speaks in a way that's derogatory. I mean, I didn't use that word because he's five. But, you know, like, I, it's okay. It's okay to say, oh, I noticed that that person has an accent or it seems like that person is speaking a different language. Like, yeah, let's talk about that. But if you're trying to, like, say it in a way, and for him it was his tone, the, the tone, like, why does she speak so weird? You know, like, no. No, son. No. Because... It's an educational moment. Right. It's an educational moment because also they're kids. And so kids don't come out of the womb knowing everything. You know? And so, it, you know, it's on us to teach. Absolutely. Yeah. Why do you think that there's so much violence in schools now? Mm. Why do you think that we have so much violence in schools? So... I don't know. I I truly, I do not know because, um, and this is something that is starting to become more personal to me, of course, because my, my children are entering school this year. Um, so the oldest will be in kindergarten. Um, and of course, I have concerns about their safety. Yes. And as I'm going on these tours to these various schools, they all have various security measures, including, you know, locking doors and kind of buzzers and alarms and security officers. And, you know, I know in some of the um, high schools and middle schools, they have uh, metal detectors for guns and knives and weapons and all of these things. Um, and I don't know what's going on. All I know is that we've got some maladapted people like some people who are just struggling with a variety of issues and they're taking it out on our children or they're taking it out you know mass shootings in grocery stores um what about the kindergartner who shot his teacher i mean it's it's crazy um it's and it's not okay you know, I, I don't think, obviously, I hope nobody thinks that kindergartners should have access to guns, but right. I, maybe somebody, I guess somebody does, or somebody wasn't paying attention to their child. I don't know. Um, but I do think that we need to have these conversations, again, um, with our loved ones and with our children about what it means to care for each other, um, what it means to protect each other. If we are people who want to have guns or who feel a need to have guns in our homes, like, what are the things that we need to do to ensure that those guns are being safely stored to make sure that we know how to use these guns? And I am guilty of this myself because we have guns in my household that are locked up, but I don't really know how to use them. Like, I don't, I need to go. I'll teach you. <laughs> I am, I, 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 I mean, used to shoot, like, trust me, I, we have so many guns here and knives and all sorts of, I adamantly love shooting. I love to shoot. Yeah, no, I like it. I mean, I, for me, it's I, it's good stress relief. And it's crazy because being from Seattle, like, I used to be very anti-gun. And I can't say that I'm anti-gun now. Like, yeah, politically, yes, I think that we need to have more strict gun laws and stuff like that. But anyways, 
we have guns and I go to the shooting range probably like once a year. So like I can figure it out, but I'm somebody, I will call myself out. If I have a gun, I need to be shooting it more than once a year. Like I need to be very familiar with it. Um, because like the, for me, the purpose of having it in, in my household, um, my husband's a Southerner. So the purpose of us having it is for protection. And if I can't use it, then it's not protection. It's just a very dangerous weapon to have in the home. Um, and so I think that there are various things that we can be doing to ensure that, um, we are, you know, creating communities of safety, um, you know, and I also wonder about conflict, about this thing, conflict, because conflict doesn't always have to be bad. That's conflict true. can can hurt and conflict can be harmful. But I think conflict is like valid and necessary and OK. And so I'm just wondering, like, what's happening that we are in situations where we've been so hurt or so triggered by whatever is going on in our lives? that we're now needing to go hurt other people. Right. I think, you know, there's societal things. I think there's mental health things. I think we could talk a lot about services that are available or not available for communities that are living with mental health or substance abuse. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think all of those play a factor into like why our schools are experiencing such, you know, alarming rates of violence. And they have one, uh, one counselor for like 300 kids. Right. That's not enough either. I've had people reach out, and I'm, I want to see your thoughts on this. If you follow this, this this story literally just ate at me. Um, a guy, I'm not sure where he was. Uh, did you hear about this? He executed his three boys. They were the cutest little boys. Um, he started fighting with the wife, shot the wife in the hand. And my understanding is that she tried to take the gun away, and then he took the boys outside. They were the cutest little ones, and then executed two one ran off he grabbed one he went chasing after him brought him back and executed him and then when the police arrived he's sitting on the stoop of his porch with his rifle right beside him and he's like hey i'm no threat to you i'm not nothing don't worry i'm, I'm good and they take him and you can see on the body cam i've watched the body cam footage that they have this black box over their bodies and there you can tell there's the kids and they get him down on the ground and he's like, I'm not comfortable. This kind of hurts. Can you pick me up and not let me? You know, most of these officers, I'm sure, are parents. They have young kids or kids themselves. And he's just, he's as calm as can be. And he's just like, I'm not a threat to you. I wouldn't open the door because my dog doesn't know you and I wouldn't try to come in. If you leave him alone, he won't hurt you. And he's saying this just like I'm saying it to you. And he's like, I'm not a threat. Not going to do anything. I don't have anything in my pockets. And then they find out that he has been planning this for months and months. This was planned. And you look at something like that and you wonder, wow. how do you look at that child every single day and know that you're, you're I, I can't wrap my head around it. Like, I, mm -hmm. I can't. And then you're expected, like, when he went to, to court, they were, the judge was like, I've never seen anything this gruesome. This is just unbelievable. And he's like, I don't want to die. And you're like, you killed your three. And, and I can't understand the mindset of where he had to have been because it wasn't like a spot action thing. And that's not okay either. But this was like meticulously planned detail by detail by detail and notebooks. 
how does this even resonate with anyone? And, you know, like, as even though, you know, you're a lawyer, what are your thoughts on this? I have so many people who've asked me about this specific case and my feelings about it. I would love your point of view on it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's incredibly tragic. I, how do I answer this? I mean, I guess I am one, I don't believe that someone can do that without something going on mentally for them. Like, I just, I don't, I don't think that we're capable of that. Um, And I'm somebody that in general, I believe that we're good people that make bad decisions. Now, obviously this person, this is a premeditated decision is what it sounds like. Um, And I don't know enough about what happened um, to comment on like what could have been going through his head, but, but it is sad. Um, That's awful. You know, that's, that's absolutely awful. And I wonder like what happened in his life to get him there, to get him to where, you know, he needs to harm his family and and people like the these are his family members but these are also people you know um this way and and the fact of the matter is like I'm somebody in my in my profession so I do civil rights work as I said and I work in jails and prisons representing people who have been convicted of these types of crimes people who have been convicted of murder um people who have been convicted of manslaughter or voluntary manslaughter um at the same time my husband is a prosecutor who prosecutes only homicides. So he's prosecuting only people who have been accused of these crimes. Right. Yeah. No, it's um interesting. And we have very different philosophies. Um, and you know, my perspective is that I think that our society has a long way to go to be able to support people to in a way that doesn't leave them with this being their only option because I guess this person felt like this was their only option and I don't know if that's because of a mental illness or I don't know if that's because of a circumstantial thing um I'm making things up right now but like I've heard of situations where the social and economic outlook on a family's like life is so dire maybe because they're in so much debt that they do these um murder suicides usually Um, and, and so maybe that was something that was, that was going on. Maybe he thought that it, you know, maybe he was overly like a religious fanatic who felt as though these people needed to be saved and this was how to save them. Like, I don't know. I don't know, but it is, it's awful to hear about, um, you know, certainly people who take other people's lives, like there's, there's something going on. Um, in my line of work, what I spend the most time doing is making sure that regardless of what you've done or been accused of doing, that you're still treated like a human, um, and that you still have, um, you know, access to medical care, access to like food, access to clean water, access to, um, clean living conditions or even decent living conditions. Um, We do a lot of work around suing jails and prisons because they're treating people inhumanely um, and unconstitutionally. What was that? There's not even enough beds. There's not enough beds. In one of the um, local jails here in Atlanta, it's a two-person cell that they have, but they sleep three people to those cells. So there will be one person on top bunk, one person on the bottom bunk, and one person on the floor. 
And these cells are, you know, probably smaller than most people's closets. And so the floor spot is right next to the toilet. Um, And the toilet, it's not like a toilet at home where that gets a top on the toilet. There's no lid on the toilet. It's just an open, like, metal toilet. Um, And oftentimes these toilets don't work. So there's standing feces in these toilets. Um, And bugs and gnats and, like, all sorts of things. And I'm not, you know, my own personal opinion is that people, human beings, don't deserve to live this way. Um, like we just have basic human rights for me. And and if we are going to be in the custody, so if we're in the care of the state or a government, then that state or government needs to ensure that people are are living like humans and not like dogs or worse. I mean, with you y'all treat your puppies and your dogs way better than people who are in yeah. Right. Then people who are in jails and, and prisons. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a multifaceted issue, like our criminal legal system and what drives people um, with this criminality. Uh, and certainly I believe in accountability. I don't want anybody listening to me to say, oh, well, Whitney just wants everybody to, I don't know, be living it up in their cells with TVs and refrigerators like Martha Stewart. No, that's not, you know, I I do believe in accountability. Um but I also believe that how our country does accountability is deeply flawed and it's flawed against people of color. It's flawed against people with mental illnesses and it's flawed against people with disabilities um, because all of these people have varying you know, things going on that affect how we can show up in society, but also affect our access to things like services. It affects our access to things like um, attorneys or uh, competent, culturally competent attorneys. Um, so like talking about uh, disabilities and access to all of the information that we need when we're dealing with um, the criminal legal system, we don't always make sure that people with disabilities actually have the access to understand what's going on. Whether that's somebody that's deaf or hard of hearing, not being able to get information communicated to them because the only way we know how to communicate information is uh, orally through sound Um, or whether that's somebody who's blind and not being able to have other supports in place to allow those people to communicate. Um, You know, our criminal legal system is a capitalist system that preys on people. So our governments make money when people are incarcerated. And so it begs the question of what is the incentive to decarcerate? Like, what is the incentive to actually make sure that if a cell can only hold two people, that it's only holding two people? When, in fact, if a cell has three people, you know, what kind of economic, what what does that mean for the government? You know, is, is more money, money coming in? Or or is the government getting free labor off of these these people, these bodies? Because the fact of the matter is people who have a detail, so that means who have a job right. in jails and prisons aren't getting paid if they're getting right if they're getting paid they're getting paid pennies you know dimes to the hour to be outside um, in a hundred degree heat like mowing the lawn it's it's considered a reward it's a coveted position to have a detail when it's slave labor um and this is labor that our governments would have to pay people for if not for the prison um, industrial complex and the prison kind of work system. And so 
You know, we have people in our jail and prison facilities who are making license plates. We have people who are scanning the um, traffic cameras to see when somebody has run a red light and recording that information. We have people who are making clothing, who are doing woodwork stuff, who are doing welding, who are cleaning. Um, all of these industries operate within the prison industrial complex. And again, when we have people who are doing these things for no money, that's saving the government money. Um, so it's a, a very complex, it's very complex. And I know like I am a victim or a survivor of crime. So I'm, you know, not coming at this perspective as being somebody that like hasn't experienced anything and just wants to love everybody. Um, that's not how I arrive at this position. Um, it's just that I know that I've made some bad decisions. I've made some mistakes that could easily have landed me in jails or prisons. Um, and I just think that you had kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier in the way that you talk about like bullying and, and children who are bullied or who are becoming bullies. And that's that our identities as people don't fit this dichotomy that we feel like it fits. Like it's not good or bad. It's not right or wrong. Like we can be right and wrong. We can do great things and do bad things. And so even like when I'm thinking about people who have victimized me and who have served time in prison, like I still have compassion for them because I know that we are human. Like this is a part of the human condition is right and wrong and victim and survivor. Because, you know, these people who are victimizing us are victims themselves, are survivors themselves of, of whatever the abuse is. Um, and, and so it's very complicated. It, you know, it's, it's not black and white. It's, it's just, it's all of the things. And I think that we as individuals have a right to feel all of the ways about it, even when those ways conflict. Even yes. if I want somebody to be punished, I can still feel like, but I don't want them to have to sleep next to a toilet bowl that has feces in it. Let me ask you, why do you think so many people who do get out end up wanting to go back in because they say that they don't feel they can live in society, that they only can live in an incarcerated state? But yeah. how do you think that is? Because it's hard. Like, life on the outside is hard. Now life on the inside is hard as well. But particularly when you've become what we call in institutionalized. So if you're somebody that's been in jail and prison for a long time, or maybe you're somebody that's grown up like in the foster care system and then you, you know, went from school, maybe you got in a food fight. I talked the other day about um, children and the school to prison pipeline that essentially. If you get in trouble at school and you do something that can be classified as a crime, then your action can be reported to the criminal courts um, and by reporting it to the criminal courts you could have a charge. You could wind up in juvie. So bullying is an example, you know, as kind of... Unless you're in special needs and it doesn't matter. Right, right. <laughs> you know, as, as I don't know, complicated as this is, because of course nobody wants their children to be bullied, the fact of the matter is, if somebody is considered a bully and then punished for it, that could have a range of consequences. Everything from just getting suspended or kicked out of the school to like maybe that bully actually did assault somebody. And so now the school has decided to refer that case to the criminal courts. And so now that 
child bully has criminal charges pending for assault. And then they're convicted. And what happens is they go to juvenile detention. And then once you're in juvenile detention, you have like, I, I don't know the exact percentage, but you have a higher likelihood of, um, you know, going, having additional involvement with the criminal legal system if you've been in juvenile detention. And so I can understand why people, I mean, not, not in the situation of faith. Like, I don't think, I don't think we should treat bullies differently depending on who they bully. Right. But I can just understand why the the zero tolerance and then actually acting on a zero tolerance bully policy can be a bit more complicated because it can have consequences for down the line. And we're we're still talking about children here. So I think like in these types of scenarios with bullying, I think the solution should be like intervention and prevention and and less punishment. Um, because punishment and particularly if you're black or brown, you know, you you just have a liar, a higher likelihood of being referred for for crimes for for um for crimes. So um you ask like why do I think some people want to go back or feel like they can do better in an institutional environment? And I think it's because our society can do so much to break somebody down to where they can't live freely, you know. Um and I think we experience that not only in the criminal and, and prison and jail environment, but also when we're talking about domestic violence and survivors of domestic violence who feel like it's kind of like, oh, well, if it's so bad, why don't you just leave? Well, you know, that's a prison in and of itself. Yes. And that provides security. Sometimes it it provides like actual money. Like Financial. you can't have a job because of whatever reason. And so you need to rely on that abuser for their money. Um, and sometimes like that means food or a place to live. And I think those are all things that apply also in the criminal legal system and in jails and institutions is that when you're in these jails and institutions, supposedly you're being fed, you know, you should be having a place to sleep. And some people, if they weren't there, they'd be homeless. What is the juvenile jails like? I know a lot of, on our team talk, a lot of the kids have been like, what is juvenile like? What is juvenile like? You know, is it, they have the same number of uh, inmates in each cell like they do for the adults? So there's different um, laws that pertain to what juvenile detention needs to look like, and they vary from state to state. Um, and I can't, so I, I can't really give a general answer other than that for the most part states say they're they purport to make it so that these facilities are like educational facilities like they're still supposed to be school um so that these these students can learn but they are jail facilities um and so they're they're out of their own volition they are still following a very set routine and structure um they probably have like class requirements and programming requirements. So not only like education in the traditional sense, but also like social um, social classes and programming around like, I don't know, how to deal with stress, how to deal with anger, anger management classes, that type of thing. Um, people can be in juvenile detention for a year or more. Um, and if you're in some states, it varies. Some states it's 16. I believe 16 and under is called a juvenile, but if you're 17 and up, you're in an adult prison. Um, some states the the age starts at 17. 
Um, and then in some states, the age starts at 18, where if you're under 18, you're going to go to a juvenile facility. If you're over 18, you're going to go to an adult facility, unless you've committed uh, or been accused of a specific type of crime, then you might be like 17, but charged as an adult and put right. in an adult jail. Do they keep the 18 year olds away from the younger kids? They're supposed to. Right. Yes. Right. At least I'll, I'll speak about here in Georgia. They're supposed to um, segregate the, the two ages because of course, younger people are gonna be more vulnerable to older people. Um, and in prisons and jails, you know, there might be people who have been, who are institutionalized, who have been there for a long time. And so there's kind of this, there's this belief that I hear a lot and that I also believe is that like jail and prison teaches you how to be a, a criminal. Yes. You know, if, if you've gone in there and maybe you've made a bad mistake, like maybe you've shoplifted or maybe you were the wrong place at the wrong time and didn't do anything, or maybe you did commit something heinous, like a murder, you know, um, there are other, there are people in the, in the prisons who do prey on people. And because of that, oftentimes people are finding themselves having to join a gang for protection. So that's one thing. And if you're joining a gang, a lot of times that might mean that you're having to do a violent act or a, a criminal act, if you will, in order to kind of get jumped in, to get accepted into that gang. So maybe you have to beat somebody up um, or maybe you have to extort somebody. Uh, so, you know, that's that's something that happens. And so they do try and keep juvenile, what they call juvenile offenders, um, young kids away from adults, um, you know, for their safety. But it is, yeah, I mean, the, the juvenile facilities, I mean, frankly, I've gotten calls about our juvenile facilities and, and them being horrible as well. I haven't done any investigations, though, into juvenile facilities yet. Nervous, but... What's the youngest person you've heard of being incarcerated in the juvenile detention center? I mean, in car okay, so I don't know the ages. Because the thing is, if you're very young, you still might be arrested, but they might release you back to your family or they might take you to like a group home that would be different than a juvenile facility, but more and more of like a I wouldn't even say a foster care because it's not a foster home, but like a they they call them group homes um, for for kids, um, where sometimes foster kids are living, um, but sometimes it's just a place to to put kids who are might be young, um, but certainly I mean twelve, eleven, twelve. So yeah. they're still babies, you know. I mean, they're babies. Oh yeah, yeah. And I I mean, like I was I was saying, you know. I've heard of here in Georgia, people getting assault charges for starting food fights, you know, and it's fun to have food fights. It's just, right. Know, right. It's what we did. We go out and play dodgeball. Now it's like, if you hit somebody with a dodgeball, you're going to jail, which is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, yeah. let kids play, come in when it gets dark, you know, get outside and enjoy the fresh air. That's just, crazy like when I have the teens on and I I've asked them you know pre-recording what's your biggest fear and they all say do I come home at the end of the day I'm, I'm petrified yeah. I'm gonna get shot and I'm like I can't even imagine being their their age and fearing every time they hear a noise is that somebody shooting a gun are they coming into my school and, you know there has been more mash every year it's getting worse 
Mm -hmm. The numbers are getting worse. Mm -hmm. It's just not right. I mean, these are our kids. These are our children. These are our children. Yeah. Um, and I'll also say, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about abuse and abuse with children in the home. And that's such a big deal. Yes. It's such a big deal when you're raising children in violent environments and teaching children that this is the solution. So because like, say you do have a bully at, at a school, but this bully is growing up in a home where one of the parents is abusing the others of the parents or they're in the foster care and a foster parent is abusing one of the children. And like they're learning that this is how you resolve conflict or this is how you find worth and value is by making other people feel small and little. Like, is it is it that child we should be punishing? You know, and like, yeah, we don't want our kid to fall victim to that child. Of course, we don't want that. But like, what else can we do to just like support each other? Yeah, that's why us women have to stick together and help each other. That's why I was like, I'm going to break the cycle. I refuse because mm -hmm. I grew up in a non-diagnosed narcissistic environment. Mm -hmm. and it was like, I was never good enough. No matter what I did, it wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. And Faith will come in here right now and say, my mom has never screamed at me and never raised a hand to me. She's never hit me. There are other ways to discipline without, mm -hmm. you know, and I can say right now that I can clearly consciously say I have never said anything to her that I regret. Like I was mm -hmm. nine years old when my biological mother told me she was, she had miscarried. And to this day that stays oh with me. Yeah. And so Faith will come in and be like, she's never said anything hurtful to me. Like I would say to her, you know, I love you. You are my heart, but I don't like the choice you just made. And we need to mm -hmm. talk about it. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about it and say, I still love you. You are my daughter. You're the love of my life. But I don't like the choice you made. Let's discuss what made you make the choice and what we could have done better. And then let's just evaluate it. And we talk about it. And then we have an understanding. And she comes to me and tells me everything. You know, and, and she's almost an adult. And yeah. so to have that, she's told me so many times, you have such respect for me. That's what makes me respect you. No matter how upset I've made you, mom, you still speak to me in a respectful manner. You don't raise your voice because in the moment we might be disappointed and upset and angry, but 15, 20 minutes later, we're not going to be, but it can still stay with her. And I told her from day one, I don't want her adulthood being where she's recovering from her childhood mm -hmm. and that's why I was determined that it stops like it, she will never experience it on my watch ever yeah and I'm just sitting here like imagining how this message from your mother of wishing that she would have miscarried you how that played a role in any self-limiting beliefs that you had moving forward it's because always, like it's always that way like she told right. my daughter that if I died on the OR table in one of my surgeries, you know, and she, this is my daughter, she said it to me. You know, it was never, you know, it was like, why can't I be happy? My biological dad used to use me as a cover for his women. Mm -hmm. And he'd be like, if you tell your mom, then you must really not love me and want me to be happy. Mm -hmm. and it, so love means lying. It's a narcissistic manipulation. Mm -hmm. And it was like, he hated that I had a therapist and it was like, you're the one who needs it, but you'll never know. So mm -hmm. I'm the one on the couch. And it literally was just, you know, if you ever tell your mom about this woman or that woman or this woman, 
then I'm going to tell her that you made me. I didn't make you do anything. I didn't right. pull down your pants. I didn't make you, you know, and yeah. it, it was constant. Like I would go and he would say, let's go have dinner. And I always was like, all right. And he would show up with another woman and I would just leave. I'm like, I'm not going to be your excuse. I'm not going to be your story. This is not, not going to happen. And, and so that's why I was like, I refuse to have my daughter feel that thing. Yeah. He used to do that around her. And no, not going to happen. It's not, and I would always say, okay, go in the other room. I'm going to talk to him. And she's like, I want to watch. I'm like, no, <laughs> you're not. Yeah. You know, and, it, and that's yeah. just what you, you learn and you see. And later on down the line, you know, I, I found out that they knew the person that ended up becoming my attacker my abuser mm-hmm. and not only that but i'm in the i'm in the icu with my daughter like mm-hmm. i'm staying with her in the icu and they took him during our icu and took him on a holiday took him on a vacation oh lord and you know and <laughs> you know, and that's our sick like we have sick people we have sick some of us are sick yes. and some of us are sicker than others this is what we say in the recovery community like some of us are sicker than others but we're I all still- sick pray for them every single day. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'll say, Victoria, that I I've yelled at my kids. (laughs) My kids, like, I can't even sit here and be like, yeah, don't yeah, because no, I've yelled at my kids. I certainly have like threatened them with a spanking or a pop, we call it a pop. But what we do do is make sure that we acknowledge where we were wrong or we acknowledge where our feelings overcame us. Um and just try and really like humanize this experience of being a parent because like I'm a human, like I'm a person. Um, I'm a person that needs time and space. I'm also a person that gets upset and overwhelmed and angry. I'm a person that gets sad and that it cries and all of these things are okay. And so like, I'm really trying to teach our sons about, um, you know, I, I want them to know when I'm upset with them, but like if I've accused them, cause sometimes, you know, I have two sneaky, tricky people. And if I accuse one of them of having done something when really it was the other one, then I pull them both aside and I say, I'm sorry that I accuse you of this because obviously it wasn't you and you, other child that did do the thing. Like, I'm not happy. I'm not pleased with this. And I'm not pleased that you let your brother take the fall for it. So, yeah. You know, it seems like in society, we need, it's okay if we have a bad day. If, if somebody cuts us off on the way home, it's okay that we're angry. It's okay that we have rage. It's okay that we're upset or whatever. But our kids cannot have a bad day. Like in society, it is frowned upon if our children have a bad day. Why is that? Why can't our kids, our kids are just little, they can have a bad day. You know, that doesn't mean because you're under the age of whatever that you don't get to have a bad day because that's not true. They're going to have a bad day. And that's what, yeah, we say in my family, like so-and-so is having a bad day. Um, One of my sons, Everett, he just goes through times where he doesn't feel like talking. Like he doesn't feel like greeting people. He doesn't feel like saying goodbye. He doesn't feel like answering people. And um, unless it's something like a safety issue where we think like you need to respond. Like if I'm telling you that you need to cross the street and now you've shut down and you're not crossing the street because you don't feel like listening to like that, like that's a problem. But like if somebody's saying bye to you, yeah, it's rude. But like, I mean, he's having a bad moment. He's having a bad moment. I'm not going to force him. I'm not, I don't want him to hear, you know, when he's 20, similar to what she said. Like, I don't want my kid recovering from me 
when they're an adult. So when he's 20 years old and he's trying to like gauge somebody's energy and decide whether or not he wants to spend time with somebody and he thinks that he doesn't feel right with this person, but instead of following his intuition, he goes ahead and is, you know, faking it till he makes it with this person and thinking of me telling him, oh, it's rude not to be nice to somebody or not to respond to them or not to let them kiss you on the cheek, you know, for um, a family member who wants to greet him and kiss him on the cheek. Then like, nah, I'm not, mm -mm, I'm not about that. Just let him be him. Talk forever. I can't believe how long we have already gone today. Tell everybody where your podcast can be found. And it's coming. It's coming. I'm already like following. Yes. So yes. tell everybody where it can be found and how they can support you and find you. Yes. So again, it's Impostrix Podcast, um, affirming pr professionals of color who navigate imposter syndrome and racial toxicity in the career. Um, and I just want to note that although I am centering professionals of color in that, like, we are having guests who are people of color and all of that stuff, this podcast is for everybody because as Victoria and I have discussed today, like, it really takes all of us to navigate these conversations, to navigate, like, cross-racial spaces um, to the point where we're able to work better together and live better together because we are an increasingly diversified world. Yes. Um, so anyways, you don't have to be a person of color to listen is really what I'm trying to say. Uh, I think everybody will gain something from it. And I am on all of the podcast platforms. Um, I like to listen to my stuff on Spotify, but you do you. Listen wherever you want. You can find me on Instagram at Impostrix Podcast. I have a website, which is www.impostrixpodcast.com. Um, and you can email me, which is also at impostrixpodcast at gmail.com. Um, and so, yeah, I would love you guys' support. Uh, if you have questions or content that you want to hear in, in those kind of topics of the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me and let me know. Um, because, yeah, I'm really wanting to be a resource and to just engage. Like I said, the goal is to be validated. I want to engage with all of you. I want to learn from all of you because this podcast is just as much for me as it is for y'all. I have to tell you, like I said in the very beginning, when I met you a few months ago, I just felt a connection to you. And I support this woman a million percent. And I would say that if I wasn't looking at her beautiful face right now, <laughs> I support her. And, and here's the thing. Is, this is not just like an interview and then I don't talk to her anymore. We text. We email. We talk. This is a wonderful, wonderful human being who has the greatest, most amazing intentions and the biggest heart. And like I said, I would say this when I'm not in front of her and I support her and I'm asking everybody that supports me to come out and support her as well, because together we make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is where it starts. Yes. So you're going to come back. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. So <laughs> I want to thank you for being here now and for coming back soon. I'm yes. back. And again, thank everybody for tuning in. and. This was a little bit of a longer podcast, but it didn't seem like it. So hopefully I'll stay to the end and we will be with you again soon. Thank you, everybody. And we will talk to you soon. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you.